Aki a korua Daniel korua ko Esme tena korua mo to pohiri a kiau ki tene ki tene wahi i tene po ki a koto katoa ko taima ki kone namana whenua ma. Me ngā mātā waka kei wanganui e tātou Me ngā tangatiriti hoki Ko tēnei mihi ki a koutou Alastair Rees is my name This is my daughter over here And we're from the Bay of Plenty And so we're a long way from home And I must say walking down the streets tonight Made me feel a long way from home We live by the Kaituna River uh, on a farm, on an orchard, uh, so um, it's it's a different environment uh, to be in here. But it's I feel like a deep privilege uh, to be among you tonight. I want to uh, acknowledge some people that are here. One of the joys of um, of getting a bit older is that you have the joy of walking alongside people for for many years. So firstly, I want to mihi uh, to my uh, dear friends from the Kapiti Coast, uh, Martin and Rita Weil, uh, with whom uh, some of us established what you call an intentional community uh, half a century ago. Uh, <laughs> um, and I just reflecting, it's so beautiful to be in a room uh, still worshipping Jesus together. Uh, so kia korua ko tēnei mihi tēnei. Um, so I just also uh, want to acknowledge uh, Cindy, what a, what a treasure uh, Cindy is for the nation. Um, I would have been quite content just to sit uh, in the midst of these waiata that you bring forth and that is able to usher in something of the tangible manifest presence of Te Atua Yurungarawa. Ke akwe e te wahini toa, ke te mihi, ke te mihi, ke te mihi. We've been walking together for a long time too. Rangi Nicholson, uh, I was thinking it's about 10 years ago that Rangi and I were in a conference in uh, Canberra together. And um, Rangi, we were together again last night at Ngati Awa, so ki akwe e te rangatera. Some of you others that have come from Ngati Awa, I just want to acknowledge you tonight and the deep um, sense of uh, God's presence and hospitality uh, that is in that place for us. So, yeah. And another friend, uh, Sam Carpenter, who was uh, the founder of this um, organisation that both uh, Naomi and I are part of, this Karufa organisation. Uh, Karufa is something you'll be hearing um, quite a lot of tonight. Karufa means four eyes, uh, literally four eyes. It refers to the uh, one of the first missionaries that came to the land. His name was Henry Williams. And uh, Sam lives in uh, Wellington now, and he was the uh, visionary and the founder of that um, of that Ropu. And so we've been walking together for quite a while too in in this mahi. So kiakwe Sam kotene de mihi kiakwe. And there's so many of you that I've seen your faces before. Uh, so just really again, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, you know. We've come a long way, and I've actually got quite a big tucker tonight. Um, that's why I'm asking you to see a screen because 
um, it'll be, you know, it might be a bit dry and boring if you if you only just listening to my voice. I've been asked to, um, this is what was given to me, any insight around our responsibility as Anglican mission units to Tatility would be awesome. Yes, buddy. How are you feeling about this? How are you feeling? Are you feeling like you're in the right place? Um, so uh, what I'm what I'm going to do is uh, give a bit of um, biblical foundation, a bit of history, uh, and then out of the history, something what I would like to point us towards uh, as a as a nation, uh, as a as a as a hahi, uh, and as as a people of God. But the, I was reflecting on this um, uh, just before, and it came to my mind. Uh, Kamihiatu ki te taranaki whanui ki te upoko tika This mana whenua of this nation in 2009 I think it was that Sir Paul Reeves stood at the settlement and he turned at the end of the whole process of the settlement that taranaki whanui uh, we were going through with the Crown and John Key was the person who was uh, representing the Crown in the, the apology uh, and, the, and the reparation that the Crown was giving to uh, that, uh, that group of iwi. And for the first time ever, and I'm not sure that it's actually been done again, but Sir Paul Reeves, after everything was done and the Māori was turned back to him and he turned to them and he said, and we forgive you. I think there's a pattern there, something about what can we do. <laughs> we can we can set some sort of a example in this way, and uh, in the midst of the deeply and ongoing <laughs> troubled times, that spirit of forgiveness is something that if, uh, you know we can actually own in a, in a deep way that grace that comes upon somebody. To be able to offer that, so that was just a, a random thought that I just had. So the mission uh, and tatility. Um, so as I said, I, I want to go through, and um, when the clicker works, I want to go through, <laughs> uh, and just let's ask for the Lord's help. That would be good. Um, maybe uh, Father, epa he mihi ki akwe itene wahi. I would just ask that he would really help us in this space to be able to deliver uh, essentially what's on your heart, hopefully, but maybe what's in my heart too. No? Okay, we're going to do that. Uh, this is. Uh, try again? Let's try again. We did it before, eh? Mm. Maybe try that one. How's that? Yeah. yeah. So, so who are we? Uh, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God formed a man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Tihei Maori order. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. So that's the, that's the mission that uh, God has given us, which I've broken down into essentially a threefold thing. What's it all about? Why are we here? This, these us human beings who are, who are this representation of, the, of God on this space and in this land. First of all, it's just that we should have lots of kids. That's the first thing. Just get it on and produce some numbers. All right? that's, that's what God said just to these two people, because that's the role. You know, we just got to get it on. And then um, the next thing he says was fill the earth. What do you think? What was he talking about when he says fill the earth? It's not talking there about numbers. What we're seeing and we're sensing is that he's saying, I want you all to be the fullness of your humanity, the fullness of your humanness and create your culture, your tikanga, your ways of being uh, as you have spread out over the earth. So he says, I want you to be humans in all of the earth. So that's, that's our, our second role, once we've got the numbers to do that. And then he gives us an instruction, which is a little bit contentious, but we need to interpret it properly, is to be kaitiaki. We are to be the stewards. So God has created us all uh, to be uh, his, his representative on the face of the earth, doing and being uh, in the place of God. So, uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. He goes on to say in Psalm 115, God dwells in the highest heavens. Even though the earth belongs to God, he has actually handed it over to us. And he says, uh, here's your place. This is your place, and I've called you to be uh, my stewards, my kaitiaki. And I've coined this phrase, I've called you to be the priests of creation. So the, the church, as I would see it, are the priests to the priests who are the priests of creation. So our job is to lay our lives down and to be the mediators for the all of humanity who have been called to be the priests uh, of creation. So this mission of God, what is this mission? The mission of God is really understanding what is it that God is saying to us by his spirit in the places where we dwell, among the people among whom we dwell, representing the divine will. So it's actually very, very wide and it needs to be spiritually discerned. You don't get a book handed to you and saying, this is the mission of God for you. This mission of God is something that needs to be spiritually discerned. I've this phrase that I've coined, it says that, that mission is the activity between the text, the scriptures, and the context. It's between the understanding, the principles, the will of God in the places where we dwell. So this is so important that we get this sense of who are we and where are we and among whom are we. 
So God's given us this great mission. This mission of the cosmos, of the, the restoration of the cosmos, the reconciliation of the cosmos, etc., etc. And one of the things, the tools that God has given us in order to be able to do the work that God has called us to do is covenants. So these covenants uh, that God has given us are things like marriage, covenants that are enable the, the uh, society to be able to function uh, in, a, in a structured sort of a way, in an ordered way that actually saves us from a kind of uh, individual chaos. Secondly are the covenants of political treaties. Less well-known covenants, but the treaties and these covenants are given to us in order to bring the kind of uh, salvation from chaos that would be there if we didn't have the kinds of covenants in place that are between people groups. So these are representative again of what God is. God is a covenant maker and we are covenant makers. This is part of the toolkit that God has given us in order to, that we might be the stewards of this creation uh, over which uh, we can, uh, which we dwell. So the other thing that I've said on this slide here is, and you'll see in a minute why am I talking about covenants, is that God actually takes covenants seriously. So when we actually covenant, so he takes obviously the covenants that God has made with humanity, but he also takes very seriously the covenants, the agreements, the commitments, the promises that we make with each other. So it's like, if I make a covenant with Cindy and they can have interpersonal covenants, God has got her back, as it were, that I would actually honour the covenant that I would make her. So it's not just a human thing. There is an action of God's involvement uh, in our midst to make sure that if we're putting our mouth into something, there's someone who uh, is going to back it up. I wish I could read these. Oh, I think I might. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So this is the this is the scriptural foundation. So we're, we're going to do some scripture stuff, and I've just about finished it now to lay a foundation that we might get into uh, our context. So from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and their seasons in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this, why? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being, as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. So if we now, that's the kind of scriptural foundation of why we do the things we do or what we're called to do in the things that we're called to do. Now I'm going to sort of take a bit of a risk and contextualize it. That means what is all that biblical stuff? Talk about stewardship, making covenants, etc. Uh, etc. Et what has that got to do with Aotearoa, New Zealand, and what has it got to do uh, with you as a group of people? 
So if we extrapolate out from that, we can see uh, that, you know, God marks out the seasons and the boundaries for all the people groups. So at a certain point in time, God was not absent. He was very present in the migratory patterns of the peoples and including uh, the Polynesian people. So at a certain point in time, uh, and obviously this is Wananga stuff that you could do for a week on each one of these things, the Polynesian people uh, began to form uh, and uh, groups uh, for larger and larger and move uh, down um, the, uh, from the uh, Asia down through the uh, Northern Pacific and then across to the Eastern Pacific and up to Hawaii and then down ultimately uh, to New Zealand. What I'm wanting to say is the context uh, of, of our mission is that in all of these uh, migratory patterns and all of these things that happened, God was not absent. So like, which is what we called theologians would call kind of deism. He wasn't, he's not some God who just got set things in motion in, in Adam and Eve and then he went off to another universe. He was, when he got the, he was actually there all the time through all of history. We call that providence, right? We know that, that God is in the midst of everything that we're doing. So we've coined this big phrase, providence, uh, to sort of cover the fact that we, we know he's around, but we don't really know exactly what he's doing. Like, you know, we know he's here somewhere. Uh, he's here in Wellington and all that. And things happen, you know, and if it's good stuff, we can say, well, you know, that's God. Um, anyway, what, what I'm suggesting is that uh, in the midst of these migratory patterns, God was, it's not accident. People heard from God. They were prompted by the Spirit. So I'm going to use a typology here. Somebody like Kupe, for example, actually, and I'm using Kupe as a type, was prompted by the Spirit to move from Hawaii, whether it was Raiatea or wherever, and came down and ended up in this Whanganui Atara. Right? There was a divine intention and a divine accompaniment, a divine presence in the movement of Māori to be the first people of the land. In other words, God appointed Tangata Whenua to be the first people. Unless we believe that God is absent and the whole thing is random and eat, drink and be merry anyway because tomorrow we die. So what's the point of making any sense out of or trying to make sense out of anything? So this is an attempt to make sense out of everything. There were other migrations. Cindy talked about this uh, beautiful warning or prophecy that came from Tuiroa Ikariki, this Ngati Kahanginu Matakiti, the seer, who talked about three years before the coming of Cook that there is coming uh, another people. They're going to be bringing with them a message about a God who is a good God. This God is the one, the son who was killed. Engari, Otera, the people will still be oppressed. So as Psalm, sorry, as Amos 3, 7 says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without notifying his servants, the prophets. So there was, again, this 
providential presence of God in the understanding that a whole other group of people were going to be coming uh, into this land. Times, seasons, and then according uh, to fulfilled Toiroa's prophecy, Ruatara uh, and Te Pahi, uh, Hongihika, invited Samuel Marston and some of the what was called the CMS or the Church Missionary Society to come to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Providentially, Ruatara was rescued from his sickness in the bowels of a boat that was coming uh, from England that Samuel Marston was on and he spent six months in Sydney with, with uh, Samuel Marston and eventually uh, they were, uh, the mission was invited to Aotearoa, New Zealand. What was this mission, this CMS mission? What was the nature of it? Well, it could have been all kinds of Christian missions, but providentially, if I had no one up, if I'm overusing that word, excuse me. <laughs> the CMS mission was influenced by a group of people that many of you will know about, the Clapham sect. And this Clapham sect was an intentional community in the part of London that was peopled by men and women, families, who purposed to live together and sought to live their lives for the kingdom of heaven and to see the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Born out of the revivals of uh, Wesley and Whitfield, a, what I call a kind of a, a, a justice evangelism. William Wilberforce was one of the most notable of those, but there were lots of others. So William Wilberforce was on the board of the Church Missionary Society that first sent missionaries to New Zealand at the request of Tangata Whenua. So that's a, a really important thing, that they came with a different mindset uh, than many other mission uh, agencies around the world of the time. In 1814, Marston arrived here. He never actually stayed here. He lived in Sydney. And in 1823, he was replaced as the head of CMS by this man called Karufa, this Four Eyes, to Wittemu, uh, Henry Williams. Henry Williams was once a sea captain. He fought in the Napoleonic Wars, and he came out here war-weary. He found himself in 1823 in the midst of the musket wars. So the musket wars happened because, of course, when uh, my forefathers came, they came with a whole new technology. And one of the technologies that they brought were the muskets. And the muskets changed the face of the internal dynamic between hapu, especially the dynamic of settling utu, how it is that uh, whānau, hapu would actually settle uh, their differences. In the old days, you would have like a taiaha and you'd be able to do one or two or maybe at the most five people in as, as reciprocation for what they'd done to you. When the Northern Māori received uh, the muskets, they went on a rampage from the north and the, apparently they killed over 20,000 people. 
that was the numbers of people that were killed because of this, what I would call technologically enhanced Utu. He found, his, he found himself, this man, Karufa, in the midst of that warfare, that giant warfare that was you know, placed across all over the nation. One of the most beautiful things, and now this is a hint, I think. This is a prophetic hint for the type of mission that we're called to. 1823, he arrived. As I said, the mission started in 1814. By 1830, only two baptisms had been recorded by the Church of England, who were the dominant church of the time. So what's that, 14 years? Oh, 16 years. 16 years. Two people. What was happening? Williams and, and the others were in the north, establishing relationship with Ngāpuhi. And you'll see in a minute why that relationship forming years of seemingly fruitless activity, because that's what was being reported back home in London, right, saying, oh, not much is happening down there. They're really, you know, they're not doing a very good job. One of the things that Williams did is, and you can see it in that photograph uh, there of the, of the boats, there is that Henry Williams was invited by uh, some of the Ngāpuhi chiefs like Titori and others like that to actually sail down with them on their um, escapades and, for example, that one's taken in Tauranga Moana. So, uh, and their diaries record the interchange that Henry Williams was having with, with the Ngāpuhi chiefs around this whole thing of warfare and utu, etc., etc. And he was pleading with them. And he began to talk about such things as grace and forgiveness and that sort of thing. But look, it wasn't something that happened overnight. Uh, he didn't stand on a street corner and proclaim the four spiritual laws and immediately the whole of the nation fell to their knees and became born-again Christians. We're talking about 16 years of relationship building and they were keen evangelists and you know their whole kind of raison d'etre really in their minds was actually to save souls they were totally unsuccessful but eventually what happened was and i'm not saying that the secret is you've got to go out and build a relationship with x and that'll lead to revival the secret is is in my view is actually understanding and dealing with the complexities, the challenges of the time, understanding that actually it's God. Salvation comes from God. It's God's heart that he so loved the cosmos <laughs> that he gave. We're just bit players in terms of being a little fingernail, you know, in the purposes the commitment of God who gave his only son, he gave everything he could to redeem this cosmos. And so as a result of that, uh, these, um, these missionaries, uh, and Henry Williams was the main one amongst them, were in the midst of the next issues of trouble after the musket wars. Musket wars, when I, put, I think people were war-weary, right? And the other thing that was happening was all my ancestors were coming over from uh, Europe and, and, and Britain and places like that and were causing all kinds of trouble. And Northern Rangatira said to them, help, 
what can we do with these drunken sailors who are actually, you know, spreading syphilis, who are, you know, drunk and disorderly, etc., etc.? Who did they turn to? They didn't turn to the sealers and whalers and the dealers and the merchants at Kororareka. They turned to the missionaries. Why did they turn to the missionaries? Because they trusted them. They trusted them. And they believed that their hearts were actually turned towards their goodness, that they weren't coming to actually do something else. So, in a remarkable way, they were responsible for the formation, the mediation of Hefakaputanga, um, Otarangatera Tangawa New Tereni, the Declaration of Independence, that first kind of uh, formal agreement that recognized the sovereignty of this land. It was Williams and others who were what I called the witnesses of that thing. They formed it together, they <laughs> translated it, and also they did the same with Tatiriti or Waitangi. It's come upon me as a new thing. As we stood, Naomi and others from Karafa, we were up at Heifokaputanga this year on 28th of October, the five o'clock call to prayer as the names of all the chiefs, the rangatera that actually signed Heifokaputanga, and all the Uri, the descendants gather around and they say, when their name of their, of their um, ancestors is called, they say, I. At the end of it, and we discovered, fell into this a couple of years ago, they called the name Henry Williams. And I'm standing there and saying, that's us. We're the Uri. We're the, we're the spiritual descendants, descendants of Henry Williams. So I said, yes, we're here. And we've been doing that now for, for, for the last three years. Not understanding what at all it means. I don't know what it means, actually, and I'm putting it out to you. This is part of your homework. What does it mean to be the witnesses to He Whakaputanga? What does it mean to be the witnesses to Tatiriti or Waitangi? Every single document that was taken around the country of Tatiriti or Waitangi that was mediated, translated, explained, was witnessed by missionaries. I think apart from maybe one or two examples. Listen to what Claudia Orange says, who's you know, our foremost uh, treaty um, uh, historian. Because you're looking for, where do we fit in this? What's the what's Tirongapai got to do with with Tatiriti? What's it? And she said the role of the English missionary in determining Maori understanding was crucial. It determined that Maori would understand the treaty as a special kind of covenant with the Queen, a bond uh, with all the spiritual connotations of the biblical covenants. There would be many tribes, including the British, but all would be equal under God. She goes on to say that Tatiriti was secured simply because many Māori trusted the missionaries' good intentions. I think we can say very clearly that without the missionaries, without Te Rongapai coming to Rangihaua, there would be no Whakaputanga, there would be no Tiriti or Waitangi. 
So Williams says, this is Henry Williams, says he was the one who, who actually exhorted northern Māori to come, sign on the dotted line. He said, feeling as I did, the terms of the treaty were a sacred compact or covenant between the British government and the chiefs of New Zealand. I was able to speak with confidence as to the integrity and the honour of England. So if we contextualise the treaty a little bit and think of who was there, in simple terms, there were three parties. Crown, Rangatira and the Church. They were all integral to the establishment of the treaty. Rangi calls the missionaries the yeast. I think in many ways that that was the high point of the relationship between our spiritual descendants and to Iwi Māori, 1840 or thereabouts. This revival had happened. The whole nation had been turned around in terms of tikanga and things like that. And the treaty had been signed, etc., etc. However, it didn't take long for a dis... If that was the... the it didn't take long for the heke to take place, the descent down the manga on the other side. And you see this uh, iconic photograph painting of um, Hone Heke as he chops down the flagpole up at Koroareka, up at Russell. I was raised with that story of, of him chopping down the flagpole, but I was never taught why did he do that? I just heard he was a willful scallywag, actually. But it was all about Kino Rangatiratanga. It was all about his opposition to the ensign that was at the top of the flagpole some years after the signing of the treaty, saying that wasn't how it was meant to be. We were meant to keep our Tino Rangatiratanga. So the issue of sovereignty um, uh, was one of the things that um, emerged after the signing of the treaty. Uh, the next, probably the other big thing besides the questions around who was it, who's in control, was the issues of land. So you know that thousands upon thousands of my ancestors, including my own ancestor Alexander Rees, who was a poverty-stricken young man and who was uh, working in the steel mills of Glasgow, came out here. And that he came out in 1867 with the promise, and these are the adverts that you can see around, to say, there's land there. There's as much land as you want. In fact, it's the promised land. There's a few people there, but it, they don't use it. It's there for the taking. So they came. Land became the issue. Sovereignty became the issue as a result of sovereignty. This is, you know, speed, history A. Kingitanga <laughs> came about. Cape was fourth, was fourth, was established because of land issues and rangateratanga issues. The other thing that happened was actually, and it's, it even exists till today, it caused schisms within iwi because some iwi decided, well, our best way forward is actually to trust the, well, not trust the crown, but to go with the crown and put our, you know, our backing to them and others uh, were to back, uh, of course, their own 
iwi, and that caused uh, great division that we're just working out today. So we have this post-euphoria of the revival and the signing of the treaty that was meant to put down uh, all the rebellions and etc. etc. Mm. And so these voices, these prophetic voices like um, Hongiheke, um, Hongiheke came up. And one of my favourites is uh, Turuki Kawiti, who was uh, at, at the top of the signatories of the, of the Tiriti of Waitangi. Gives you this, this quotation, which I'll read out, gives you something of the type of quality and depth uh, uh, and the mana of, of the people of the Rangatira that were signing um, the treaties and were immersed in these problems at the time. He said to his people, my illustrious warriors and people, I fought with God last night, but I survived. You might recall some Old Testament reference to a place called Peniel. Therefore, I call upon you to trample anger under your feet. Hold fast to your faith, for the day will come when you will be ruled over by your Pākehā friends. So he's prophesying to his people. And he's saying, be patient. Wait until the sandfly nips the page of the document. The sandfly was the name that they gave to Pākehā the sacred covenant. Then and only then shall you arise and question and oppose, lest you break the sacred word of your ancestors, the covenant. So what he's saying is to his people is saying, let them be the breakers of the covenant first. Once they've broken the covenant, then we will respond to that. We have this beautiful, and I don't think I'm over-idealising the relationship between the church and Māori. I am generalising, but there was something incredibly precious about it. And then with the pressure of the land and the demand for land, we had the outbreak of the land wars. First major outbreak was in Taranaki, where Cindy's from, and at, at that place, the missionaries, people like Octavius Hatfield and others from around this district, they were clearly on the side of Māori and say, this is an unjust process, what's happening, this taking of the land from from, from Iwi. However, the next big outbreak was in Waikato, where the kingitanga, the king, uh, was established under Potatota Whero Something happened there that for most missionaries, it was a step too far. This is a challenge to me. The challenge is this. At that point, the missionaries had to make a deep cultural decision did they go after or follow the indigenous decision of the time that was in, contra, in contrast and opposition to their own culture or did they go with their own culture? Ultimately, they chose their own culture and they said that their opposition of the king movement was uh, a rebellion against God. I've felt that in movements because it's easy to look back in history and say, oh, those guys... You know, but think about the seabird and foreshore and things like that, and they're going to come more, some more and some more, and the church will be tested as to where our allegiances truly lie. Do they, as and I'm talking here to the Pakeha Church, obviously, do we support our status quo and our well-being, our right to the beaches? our right to have a barbecue wherever we want, whenever we want, or can we actually 
be sacrificial in our commitment. There emerged this motif around Naboth's vineyard, the motif about the king of uh, Israel taking land, and that became a motif that was used by many Māori. So one of the strange things that happened was the barbarian Māori, in their dispute against the Pākehā, used biblical motifs and addressed them as brothers in Christ. Whereas the Crown, the government said, that's only for Sundays. We don't do that from Monday to Saturday. So we're talking about an extraordinary expression of, I think, a deep, deep work of the Spirit in the land uh, that hasn't really been understood. As a response to all of this, the church, the loss of land, etc., the church was mainly silent. From the time of 1860, when my spiritual forefathers, like Karafar and others, were completely committed to an indigenous, uh, to shepherding an indigenous church, from then on it was largely silent. We went and we began to minister to all the new settlers that came out here. The height of the treaty, the revival, the descent into the land laws, land wars, what was the impact upon Māori? Essentially, it was deprivation, the loss of whenua, massive, massive loss, 90, 95% loss of control of whenua, associated with the loss of whenua is the loss of identity, people of the whenua, the loss of language, and of course, the loss of being able to identify as indigenous Māori if you want to make any progress in society. The way forward was into assimilation, or death, actually, was the, what was actually prophesied. The church silent, 1860, 1865, more, all the way up to, they began to emerge a little bit, maybe 1985, 150 years of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, they had a gathering up at Waitangi, the Queen came out, it was the sesquicentennial uh, commemoration, the Queen, all the dignitaries from around the world. And this man called Whakahuhu Verko, who was the head of your church, well, the Māori division at the time, was invited to speak. Very non-political kind of person. And I think he was seen as a bit of a patsy by the crown that he would get up and he would say something polite. He got up and he said this. And I'm going to read the quote to you. It was extemporaneous. It was a bit like a Martin Luther King. He put the notes aside. He'd been booed by his own Tino Rangatera people, uh, Tino Rangatera Tanga people, as he, as he stood to speak. And this is what he said. I want to quote from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. It is much more expressive in Māori and I take liberties with the scripture. 
i tātahi o ngā wahi o waitangi noho ana tātou i reira. A e tangi ana tātou ka mahara ki a hiro. By the waters of Waitangi we sat down when we cried, when we remembered Zion. Some of us, he said, have come here to celebrate, some to commemorate, some to commiserate, but some to remember what happened on the sacred ground. We have come to this sacred ground because our tūpuna left us this ground. 150 years ago, a compact was signed. A covenant was made between two people, a unique and unusual circumstance. But since the signing of that treaty 150 years ago, I want to remind our partner that you have marginalised us. You have not honoured the treaty. Actually, we have not honoured each other in the promises that we have made on this sacred ground. Since 1840, the partner that has been marginalised is me. The language is yours, the custom is yours, the media by which we tell the whole world is yours. What I came here for is to renew the ties that made us a nation in 1840. I don't want to debate the treaty. I don't want to renegotiate the treaty. I want the treaty to stand firmly as the unity, the means by which we are one nation. As I remember the songs of our land, as I remember the history of our land, I weep here on the shores of the Bay of Islands. May God grant us the courage to be honest with one another, to be sincere with one another, and above all, to love one another in the strength of God. So I come to the waters of Waitangi to weep for what could have been a unique document in the history of the world of Indigenous people with the Pākehā. And I still have that hope that we can do it. Let us sit and listen to one another. I believe that's a prophetic statement from 1990 that still has resonance. I want, if you just give me a few more minutes, to, to move into, if that was, the, in a sense, the high point of the challenge of Whakahuhu Virko to us, something of a way forward. So that's what I want to finish up with, just dropping that within you for you to consider. These are just ideas that I want to um, give to you. I think one of the most profound quotes that I know of as a Pākehā about Tatiriti about is this one. So this is uh, Sir Eddie Jury, a High Court Judge and of the Waitangi Tribunal. He said, speaking to Tangata Whenua around the same time as the Whakahuhu Virko um, pronouncement, he said, we must not also forget that the treaty is not just a Bill of Rights for Māori, it's a Bill of Rights for Pākehā too. In fact, um, I want to say that it's not for Pākehā too. It's for all who actually enter into the land uh, through the treaty gate. That's who it's for. Uh, that's why we call it Tangata Tiriti. It is a treaty that gives Pākehā the right to be here. Without the treaty, there would be no lawful authority for the Pākehā presence in this part of the South Pacific. We must remember that if we are the Tangata Whenua, the original people, then the Pākehā are the Tangata Tiriti, those who belong to the land by right of the treaty. To honour our forebears then, speaking to Māori, he says, we as Māori must never challenge, threaten, compromise or prejudice the rights of Pākehā to be here. We cannot claim our own rights if we do not first respect the rights of others. 
So Eddie puts a weddle in the ground, and I think it's a very important weddle. Uh, it's affording to people like me a tūranga waiwai. As tangata tiriti, it gives me a place to stand. A place to stand, uh, which I can stand in confidence with a, a backing of morality and integrity and justice in the first instance. Just whipping back, and I'm looking for some motifs that actually will help, maybe help us to see this tiriti in a missional kind of way. Now, Lord Bledisloe was the uh, Governor-General in 1930s. He came into possession of the treaty grounds. Unusual thing. Well, it's not unusual, but that's what happened. Māori lost control of all those grounds that many of you will have walked on. It was a farm. He bought the farm. Something spoke to him. And he said, I want to give this land back to the nation. He gave Waitangi back. I know it's ironic. He gave the back to the nation partially to Tangata Whenua, and he said this, Let Waitangi be to us all a tataupaunamu. He's saying, Let Waitangi be for us all a pathway or a doorway to reconciliation. And so for me, I've picked this up and I believe that it is a divine, to use that word again, providential gift, of God for this nation, as Whakamuhu uh, Virko has said, this covenant uh, has been a gift to us to facilitate a structural ordering of this nation to deliver us from the kind of chaos that non-treaty nations are immersed in. So let's just finish with some, with some summary to hopefully awaken something in our own hearts about the possibility of this, which it says. It's a reconciliatory covenant that was born out of a spiritual awakening. The Wesleyan, Whitfield, Whitfield Clapham sect, uh, the uh, Sir James Stephen Foreign Office, uh, through into uh, Oihi, Rangihaua, around the coast, into Waitangi direct or indirect connection to the, uh, the spiritual awakening. There was a providential relationship between Te Rongapai and Te Tiriti or Waikangi. I've said that Māori is Tangata Whenua, the providential first people invited others into the land in a spirit of hospitality. They received the diaspora like my ancestors from Europe. Uh, as, the, uh, as the Leviticus instructions to the children of Israel were. Without going into detail on this slide, if, it's like a, a de facto relationship that began with Tasman and then went to Cook. And those were kind of really relationships of uh, real problematic. Sealers and whalers came and there was a lot of love affairs, a lot of arguments. And then we move from that de facto relationship into a formal marriage at Waitangi. I want to use and finish up with this 
idea, this possibility to you to think in terms of the covenant of Waitangi being similar to a covenant of marriage. What I wanted to say is we need imagination. The treaty has been taken by the legal people. I don't mean that, of course, it needs to sit there, but it's become the predominant sphere of the legal people when it was something that was born out of a spiritual awakening. Witnesses, witnesses to the treaty need to arise. Finishing up here. If we are called into this covenantal relationship with one another as Tangata Tiriti and Tangata Whenua, what will make this marriage work? The Apostle Paul says in the instructions around marriage, he said in Philippians 2, that Jesus, who being in the fullness of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took upon himself the likeness of a servant, and he became obedient, obedient even unto death. Paul extrapolated that into the marriage, and he said to each person, you need to submit yourselves one to another. You need to yield yourselves one to another. In my heart, we need to move beyond rights talk of the treaty to a grace-infused, cruciform ethic, to use a fancy theological term. What's that mean? Where the cross impacts our lives such that I, as Pākehā Tangata Tiriti, are willing to lay my life down for my marriage partner. So... I'm looking for the prosperity of tangata whenua. That's how I judge everything, this is ideally, that goes around in terms of legislation, in terms of deals, etc., etc. I want to see the language restored. I want to see culture restored. I want to see land restored. I want to see identity restored. Why is that? Because I want an agape spirit the best for my marriage partner. This is the last one. Tukuti, Rangi. This is the quotation of his, near his deathbed, he said, talking to the land, he says, no longer will you be deserted or your name land or your, the name of your land desolate, but you will be called Hefzibah and your lamb Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Tumutuanae nei tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa.